How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS-dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Hello, and welcome to the latest EMS World original podcast. I'm John Eric, Senior Editor, and today's guest is Rob McDonald, Operations Manager from AMR in Multnomah County, Oregon. That's the county that includes uh, Portland, the state's largest city. Rob, thank you for joining us. Hi, you're welcome, John. I'm glad to be invited. Um, today we're here to talk about the defensive tactics and de-escalation training uh, AMR has provided to its its local personnel. But before we get into that, I suppose we should touch base briefly on this uh, this small matter on everyone's minds the uh, the COVID uh, pandemic. How are things going here uh, in in Multnomah County, Rob? Uh, what are you guys seeing here in in mid May? How's it looking for you? You know, it's interesting. The mantra that I think I've continued to repeat in, in most of the meetings we have is it's amazing what you can get used to. Right now, it feels a little bit like business as usual in a new business in that, you know, the, the PPE being applied in the field now, the, the uh, extra care and, and concern taken for provider safety related to uh, infectious disease. Uh, it's, it's really changed the landscape for us a little bit. Um, the good news is we have a wonderful uh, staff here, and, and they've responded. Uh, I, I couldn't be prouder. Oh, wonderful! That's that's great to hear. And everyone is staying healthy, or have you had some uh, some infections? No, thankfully we have no infections uh, of our workforce at this point um, in the local area. Uh, AMR and GMR nationally have had occasional infections, um, but thankfully the incidence is low. That's wonderful news. Well, let's get into the uh, into this training. I understand that this all came about uh, with a change in state law uh, that happened a few years ago. Can you can you tell us about that and uh, what changed and what did it mean for for you guys? Yeah, uh, in 2016, and in, in actually in prior to that, there was there was a negative event that occurred in in Portland uh, with a patient in behavioral health crisis uh, with a poor outcome that really put a lot of emphasis and, and, and a bit of a microscope on how Portland and the metropolitan area is handling folks in behavioral health crisis. Uh, in so doing, we worked with the Oregon Health Authority in adopting and, and updating Oregon administrative rules to allow ambulances to participate in secure transport, secure transport being transport of an individual who has been placed on a law enforcement or a director's hold. Okay. So these are, these are folks who are actively in crisis? Correct. Correct. These are folks that uh, these 911 emergent calls uh, could have been initiated because law enforcement encountered the patient during uh, an event where there may have been infractions to the law or somebody is unsafe or unable to care for themselves or a danger to others. It could be something a citizen can identify. It generates just like any other 911 call for us. So what kind of implications did this have for, for your crews out there? What kind of requirements uh, were they facing with, with these patients? Well, at the outset, it's a patient population in our history that we really haven't participated all that much in. Historically, prior to 2016, was handled primarily with law enforcement personnel. 
where they were determining, again, if there was if there was a law infracted, they, of course, would go through legal means and, and, and have that patient taken and processed in the jail system. Or if there really isn't necessarily uh, a legal issue, they would be the ones that would actually take the patient to emergency rooms. After the scrutiny that came about with the Department of Justice on the Portland Police Bureau, uh, we recognized that being a good partner, we could probably assist and work with Oregon Administrative Rules and put together essentially a response system, a response protocol that allows us to safely transport that patient who's been placed on a law enforcement or director's hold. Uh, unfortunately, subsequent to that, uh, there was an increase in assaults on your personnel. What what kinds of things did you start seeing? You know, particularly at the beginning, <clears throat> you know, we were seeing the the kicking, the biting, you know, patients who are are being taken to facilities because again, they can't necessarily care for themselves or they're or they're a danger to others. But that might not be something they necessarily thought was going to happen for their day, and and they weren't too keen on the idea of being taken against their will. We encountered patients who, while at the same time we were attempting to be helpers, I think that we were lumped in briefly with uh, law enforcement efforts. Um, so we, you know, we would get the occasional uh, uh, kick or or bite, um, a tussle. What we found, at least at the outset, was a lot of the incidences occurred probably because it was a new program. So these are new processes, you know, a new way to interface with law enforcement. Like any other new initiative, there's going to be bugs. At the outset for us, we noted that it was more procedural and trying to work in communication and in concert with our law enforcement partners to find out and determine what is everyone's role at the scene and do we need to have a better idea of what is going to be the plan to safely transport this particular patient? That took some time. Uh, there's there's a lot of moving pieces on these calls, and you're interfacing with, with different allied agencies that may have different priorities. So once we really got that ironed out, that helped a great deal. Uh, once we started working with law enforcement to put together best practices and and expectations on these scenes, you know, we began to start to mitigate some of those assaults. That said, even after we really streamlined things and got everybody on the same page, we were still experiencing the occasional assault. Hopefully no one uh, seriously hurt. Were these were these folks that um, were familiar with uh, the system? Were they, were they frequently transported uh, individuals? You know, some were. Uh, some were high utilizers of the EMS system and, and, and in truth, the law enforcement system. Uh, there's a large amount of this population that is houseless as well. And that brings about its own challenges, as, as anybody can appreciate. So, yeah, for us, it was really kind of a it was a venue that we were familiar with because we have medical calls that coincide with behavioral health crisis. But having this be the primary reason for our existence on that particular call was new. So how, how did leadership come to the decision uh, to, to seek out this training? Well, we did a lot of research uh, looking at different vendor options and, and different uh, companies that, that assist in educating law enforcement. They assist in, in, in actually educating any and all businesses about workplace violence uh, and things like that. For us, it, it was uh, about a six-month search to determine who we wanted to partner with and who we wanted to work with on that. That's where we found Defensive Systems out of Southern California. Uh, they were an excellent option for us because what they provided for us was uh, train the trainer options to 
give us the construct of the training, um, both in, in verbal de-escalation and, and an even physical escape, um, but then to actually give us the tools to reform and, and, and fit that to our specific needs here locally in Oregon. I know out there on on YouTube there are some videos uh, from the local news uh, sources of of some of your folks going through this training uh, when you first implemented it. Um, can you tell us about the components of the training, the the physical, the verbal, and and what are the pieces of it? Uh, you know, much of the content of the training course is a lot about verbal de escalation and also means of egress. One of the things that I think when all of us started training, whether at the EMT or paramedic level, and and the, the monicum of scene safety, you know, sometimes after you've gone through and you've been in the field for a while, that tends to de-emphasize. And this was a nice reminder about determining scene safety, seeing some of the subtle signs and symptoms of a scene that's starting to escalate, uh, whether it be through the patient's posture or, or their tone of voice. A lot of the training was emphasizing how to recognize those cues uh, in addition to when you approach the scene what are going to be the ways in which I'm going to approach this person that allow me the best means to escape if need be. So many subtle things that I think oftentimes will go forgotten on calls when we as, as clinicians tunnel vision into how do I get this patient best packaged safely and transported. This was a wonderful reminder about making sure that you've got a way out, that you're approaching the patient in a way that wouldn't allow them to, to get hands upon you. It then is complemented by physical ways in which you can escape, whether it be a hold on your wrist, a hold on your shoulder, a hold to your throat, or a push up against a wall, uh, means by which you can get away safely and escape. And you put your entire workforce uh, through this training? We did. We actually put all of our frontline providers and operations supervisory teams through for operations here in Portland as well as in uh, Clackamas County to the south of us and to our partners in Southwest Washington and Clark County. How, how was this received by your, by your folks? Very well. Um, we made sure to include in the training teams a lot of the field personnel. We wanted as much feedback and participation from, from peer leaders that are out there doing the work each and every day to provide the input in building the training and then also in actually being the trainer at these uh, various classes. Now, I understand AMR also instituted a policy to allow providers uh, at their discretion to wear ballistic protection. Um, am, am I understanding that correctly? Is that is that the policy? And then how many of your folks have, uh, have taken advantage of that? For ballistic vests, for us, we wanted to try and provide them at least the option should they choose to want to wear something like that. Um, you know, the good news is, the incidences that would require a ballistic vest in EMS are profoundly low, uh, but you've got folks out there who feel that's going to be something important for them, that they want to have that. Um, so we gave them the opportunity to purchase that at their own expense. Uh, they're responsible for the care and maintenance. Uh, the only requirements that we have is that we provided the two specific vests that would be allowed and that if you were to purchase one and, and participate in that, that the requirement would be you wear it all the time. And I understand this is this is pretty rare for, for non-fire-based services still at this point, isn't it? It is. And, and, and I think the reason is, again, the incidences of, of us at AMR, really EMS across the country, the instances that would require you to have a vest or, or, or having a vest would, be, would, would have been a good option. 
are so profoundly low that we, you know, it's one of those things that we're, we're glad that if you want it, you can use it. All in all, it probably isn't something that should be a standard requirement. Rob, as far as the defensive tactics and, and de-escalation training, understanding it's been a fairly short time since, since you implemented this, are you able to evaluate the results? Are, are you seeing any benefit or is it too early to tell? You know, it's probably too early to tell. Uh, that said, anecdotally, I will tell you the incidences of, of violence against EMS for us has have dropped. I'm getting isolated reports back from field staff that report to me of incidents where they, they actually use the skills they were taught. And, and oftentimes these stories come with, hey, I recognize this was escalating. I put myself in a position that I was able to assist and provide service, but in a manner that was safer. Um, maybe they didn't engage that person exactly at that time. They recognized that the patient was was profoundly in crisis, maybe too manic at the time that we need to back away. Um, what it also did is it, it provided them a little bit more understanding of what law enforcement is thinking about on these scenes. Law enforcement, because of, of the hostile events that they will often encounter, you know, they're consistently thinking about where's my safe means of egress? What, what's my best way to approach this particular person in crisis? And, and it gave EMS, for us, a much better purview on what is it those guys are thinking while we're considering, do I need to start a line on this person or, or, or what's the underlying medical condition? We now have those skills to complement the, the medical services side of it. I'm, I'm sure that broadened perspective is is very useful to these integrated scenes. Um, Rob, looking back at this, I- any wisdom or lessons learned uh, through this process that you can share with other systems that are considering it uh, and any advice uh, to share? Some of my best recommendations are please make sure your relationship with your law enforcement partners is strong and that the communication lines are wide open. Um, we're very fortunate to have that here. Um, all the way up to police chiefs that are engaged and understand the work that we're doing. Um, We've provided them information on what our training course looks like, um, what our expectations are. You know, knowing and having that good relationship with your law enforcement partners on these particular scenes especially is so important. All right. Well, Rob, uh, we thank you so much for, for joining us today and for sharing your experiences and insights. I'm sure it'll be very useful for everyone uh, listening. Yeah, I was very happy to do it. Thank you for inviting me. Today, we'll be reading our June cover story, 10 Lessons for Managing Civil Unrest. At least before the COVID-19 lockdown, civil unrest had become a regular factor in a lot of American lives. It's not just an impression that Americans are angrier, more divided, and taking it more to the streets. In its compendium of U.S. civil unrest events, Wikipedia lists seven incidents in the 1980s, 10 in the 1990s, 15 in the aughts, and 31 from 2010 to 2019. That's some increase, and it's not confined to big cities. Among the affected locations in the 2010s were towns like Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Santa Cruz, California. Two of the worst occurrences were in Charlottesville, Virginia, and Ferguson, Missouri. Not all produced large numbers of casualties, but virtually all had and have the potential, and all can pose risks to EMS personnel. To distill lessons and best practices for dealing with these volatile events, EMS World talked to three leaders who have been through them. Andrew Baxter, chief of the Charlottesville Fire Department, leadership consultant Chris Sebolero, who headed St. Louis's Christian Hospital EMS during the Ferguson riots, 
and Rob McDonald, Operations Manager for AMR in Multnomah County, Oregon. Multnomah County includes Portland, where prolonged strife has followed the 2016 election, and left and right-wing protesters frequently square off in dueling, sometimes violent rallies. Here are 10 of their key ideas. Number one, talk first. When an event erupts without warning, such as after some police shootings, it can be difficult to pre-map specifics. You have to rely on broad brush plans and training, and work out aspects like staging locations and command details in real time. But when an event is planned, like the 2017 Unite the Right rally that went awry in Charlottesville, or some of the Portland protests, it may be possible for public safety, generally led by law enforcement, to communicate with group leaders and get some degree of advance handle. Portland police have been known to talk extensively with both sides before protests. It allows Incident Command to plan ahead, says McDonald, whose agency typically handles triage and transport at protest scenes. We've gone so far as being able to get estimated numbers of attendants. For the last year or so, we've had relatively decent notice because of our relationships with our law enforcement partners. They're quick to reach out to us and the fire agencies to establish a working plan. Number two, it's hard but stay unified. Getting everyone on the same page isn't easy in the heat of events. Don't wait till things are burning to try. In Charlottesville, a KKK rally the month before Unite the Right produced some low-level violence without a single incident action plan or real unified command by responders. As Unite the Right approached, fire leaders saw the potential for a repeat. It became clear we were headed for the same thing as far as command and control, says Baxter. We also saw the resources being brought to bear on the law enforcement side were extensive. So after a couple of weeks of trying, we finally convinced the Charlottesville police to bring in an incident management team through the Virginia Department of Emergency Management. That team arrived three days before the rally and pulled disparate law enforcement operational plans into a single IAP with unified command. That broke down when the event began and law enforcement agencies reverted to their individual plans, but the framework was in place. In Ferguson, they didn't have that opportunity. After Officer Darren Wilson shot teenager Michael Brown in 2014, Protesters, police, and press began accumulating, and things hit a flashpoint after a candlelight vigil the next day, with at least 12 businesses vandalized and more than 30 people arrested. Christian hospital personnel had staged nearby that night, but quickly found themselves in the middle of the conflagration. Trucks being surrounded and blocked had to be quickly relocated. The protesters on that scene were very, very angry, says Ceballero, and one of the things I had difficulty with was knowing who was in charge. I was trying to look for unified command for my peers who'd be running this incident. We never had the opportunity to collaborate because there was never a unified command. The looting, vandalism, and violent clashes between police and citizens lasted nearly two weeks. I don't know that we got a true unified command until about day 14, Ceballero adds. There were just too many chiefs and not enough Indians at this event. The county police showed up. The state police showed up. The FBI came. There were more and more people getting involved, and the higher they got, the less they kept the lower people involved in discussions of what was going on. Number three, protest scenes are dynamic. As Christian hospitals, troops had to relocate, so have AMRs in Portland. Rallies may not stay in their original or permitted areas. It's pretty dynamic. The venues change, the geographic and topographical areas change, so access points and staging areas can often evolve, says McDonald. It ends up being very much a case-by-case basis. Our common goal is that transport and triage stay in a cold zone, but we've seen these events can migrate, on one occasion right into our laps. It went from nobody around us to 300, 400 people angrily shouting at one another all around our ambulance. Unite the Right was supposed to begin at noon, but tensions were so inflamed that protesters and counter-protesters gathered early and brawling commenced even while fire personnel were being briefed. 
The city, then the governor, declared emergencies, and state police declared the rally unlawful and cleared the park. Around 1,000 people scattered into downtown. Two hours later and four blocks away came the infamous car ramming attack in which James Fields killed Heather Heyer and injured 19 others. Things were explosive enough in Charlottesville that day to spook even those with military experience. You had multiple armed militia groups from various places on the political spectrum marching around with long guns and Kevlar helmets and ballistic gear, says Baxter. You had neo-Nazis and white nationalists marching to and fro. At one point, one of my firefighters, a combat veteran, looked at a state trooper guarding the perimeter of our staging area and said, are we going to be able to hold this? The trooper told him, I don't know. These guys are better armed than we are. That firefighter told me he'd been in combat, but he was more concerned about his safety that day in our city than he was when he was deployed. Everyone was armed, and it was such a dynamic situation. Number four, keep a pulse. Safety is priority number one, of course. Keep EMS troops in the cold zone, have casualties brought to them, and stay situationally aware if things evolve. Charlottesville's coordinated response defined three operational levels, the last of which was complete defensive posture for worst-case turns. We had three predetermined levels tied directly to the health system's IAP and operational modes, says Baxter. Level one was normal operations for both us and the hospital, albeit with a lot of extra resources. Level two was a declared MCI, but not particularly because of violent activity. And then level three would be a defensive operation. That declaration triggered pre-planned steps, including us pulling all our resources back to a protective staging area and the hospital activating its disaster plan, which calls in extra staff and shuts down the road in front. That point was reached even before the emergency was declared. Also with an eye on safety, Multnomah County AMR has provided de-escalation and defensive tactics training to its entire workforce of more than 500 and drafted a policy to allow ballistic vests. Remember, these are stressful and unpredictable situations that can tax responders psychologically as well as expose them physically. In Ferguson, Christian's contingent included many younger providers. There's a lot going on at these events, but try to monitor field troops' state of mind. At one point, I looked at my team, and somebody said to me, I am very uncomfortable here. I am out of my comfort zone, and I don't know what to do, Sebolero says. I hadn't been thinking about that. I had to think about my team's safety and making them feel a bit more comfortable in this very volatile situation. There were times when things got iffy. Rocks and bottles were thrown at the ambulance. There was one time where a car pulled up next to the ambulance and someone brandished a weapon at our driver. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. I think our folks were more hurt mentally than they were physically. Number five, help everyone help themselves. You shouldn't need to be told to treat all injured victims professionally, but it can be hard especially when some of these players really hate the whole authority structure of which EMS is a part. It's a difficult thing when you hear a provider say, I'm not going to treat those people, says Semolero. We didn't want to be seen as only there for the police. We're here for everybody. This isn't about politics, it's about our duty to act. I got feedback from some of our firefighters that they had some less than positive interactions with the counter-protesters, said Baxter. The folks we ended up engaging with were what I'd guess you'd call street medics, which we learned a bit more about when this all happened. There's online curricula for people who want to provide medical support to their friends and comrades who are protesting. In fact, street medics have been a feature of protests in all three cities, and it can be valuable to work with them if they're willing. In Missouri, Christian Hospital EMS helped protesters set up and stock a basic medical tent. In Charlottesville, after denigrating firefighters, protester teams sought resupply from them. And overall, they may relieve a bit of burden on actual EMS personnel. On a practical level, we haven't necessarily been required to render a ton of EMS treatment during these events, says McDonald. Their embedded volunteers do some of the irrigation and treatment on the fly in the hot zone, 
where they're actually part of the event. They have fanny packs or some other carrying device with bandaging and other treatment equipment. So very often the injured don't actually get to us, but are taken care of by their own. Number six, mind your identity. Though present to help, not incarcerate, we've all felt lumped in with police in that power structure many people distrust. It's a paradox, as EMS must work closely with law enforcement for the protection of both sides. So how do you distinguish EMS in a way that says, don't take it out on me? Prior to Ferguson, Cebolero had been working to spruce up Christian Hospital EMS's look, adding button-up shirts and badges and brass. When the riots started, that idea needed reevaluated. People were coming out against the police and we realized the danger, and I told them to take those shirts and badges off, he says. There's no evidence EMS providers who wear uniforms with shirts and badges are equated to police officers, but that changed my opinion. When folks walk in with a blue shirt and gold badge on, who's to say who they are? I'm not advocating we don't put our people in professional uniforms, he adds, but I am saying that in a crisis of civil disobedience, maybe those aren't the uniforms we should be wearing. We do encounter distrust in some of those communities, says McDonald. It often takes a one-on-one conversation. Hey, I understand I arrived with law enforcement, but I'm not part of law enforcement. I'm here to help you. That seems to be the most effective manner to educate folks, real-time, one-on-one. But I think there's also merit to considering a more media-centric outreach to folks to indicate that EMS is here to help and isn't an incarcerating body. Number seven, game faces always. Shortly before Ferguson, a Christian hospital EMS provider was caught laughing at the scene of a car accident. It made national news and dinged the organization's professional shine. That provider didn't intend disrespect or find the accident or injuries funny, but any mirth at a crash scene was seen as inappropriate. That's the kind of thing you have to worry about when cameras are everywhere and every citizen is potentially a journalist. That was on Cebolero's mind during the riots. It's not unusual for humans to react to great stress or tragedy with dark humor, nervous laughter, or an awkward grin. EMS requires suppressing that instinct in public. We were in a group and some of the paramedics were laughing and smiling. It was their defense mechanism, Cebolero says. I looked over their shoulders there at the news cameras and told them, we don't want to smile at this event. We don't want to laugh. We want to make sure we handle this business as professionally as we can. Number eight, the injury profile. You know most of what to expect here. Blunt trauma, contusions, lacerations, chemical exposures. More pepper and bear sprays these days. Not so much gunfire sometimes. Reports of Portland protesters throwing milkshake cups full of fast-setting concrete will dispel. Cebolero. Rocks and bottles were big. A police responder had an ankle broken. I believe somebody threw a cinder block. We were seeing people beaten up, injuries to the head, face, and torso. There was one guy beaten unconscious, but because he was in an area we considered hot, he lay there for a little bit before we could get to him. There were a couple of people shot, but by the time we arrived, they disappeared. McDonald. Knock on wood, we haven't actually had a gunshot. Typically, it's contusions, abrasions, very rarely a puncture. More often than not, it's a lot of irrigation of eyes and faces, folks who have been pepper sprayed or something. We end up going through all our saline bottles. Baxter, there was fighting but no real dramatic serious injuries. We had some environmental injuries with law enforcement officers and various levels of protective equipment. There was only one shot fired. But it is remarkable, given the number of people who were heavily armed that day, we were one bad actor away from an absolute massacre. Number nine, keep communicating. These are stressful, fast-moving situations, and leaders may have to make quick decisions. Blow-by-blow updates for the field may not be feasible, but keep it a priority to communicate downward. At times, it was hard to make decisions and have the workforce understand why, says Semolero. As one example, we had a pregnant woman in imminent delivery, and we weren't getting forced protection at that time. 
we parked the ambulance about half a mile away and the EMTs had to walk through some woods to get to her house and then walk her back through the woods to the ambulance. When that call was over, I had one provider livid with me. He said, how can you make a decision like that? I told him the reason I can make a decision like that is so at seven o'clock tomorrow morning, you go home to your wife and kids. That's why I made that decision. Kept too much in the dark, people tend to invent their own narratives, which can grow quickly. Even if you lack information, update what you can and be frank about what you can't. Number 10, never waste a good crisis. There's no substitute for experience, and turmoil can help forge young talent into tomorrow's leaders. Make the best decisions you can, but allow trusted subordinates to be part of the planning, execution, and after actions. The Ferguson riots were something EMS had never really experienced before, unless you were in Los Angeles after the Rodney King verdict, says Sebolero. Is this ever going to happen again in Ferguson, Missouri? I can't answer that question. But I can tell you that we made decisions that would allow people who are still there to be prepared if it ever happens again. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 